Thank you. Would you open up your Bibles this morning to Proverbs chapter 13? Proverbs chapter 13. It's on page uh, 637 if you want to take a pew Bible, if you don't have a Bible. Turn to Proverbs chapter 13 on page 637. Children here, uh, kindergarten to second grade, who like to go to children's church can go to children's church if they wish. And we're in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 14. It's page 637 in the Pew Bible. So we continue in our sermon series in Proverbs, getting back into this little mini-series we're in right now, which is focused on the tongue, on, te- on our speaking. And we're looking at the different Proverbs that have to do with how we use our words. Proverbs 13:14 says, The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life, turning a man from the snares of death. Have you ever had a defining moment in your life? One of those life experiences, it might have been a good experience, it might have been a painful experience, but it was a life experience that, that so profoundly shaped you and uh, changed you that, that it set you on a new trajectory in your life. And you look at who you are today and you realize that who you are and the reason you're here is in part because of that profoundly defining experience that you had in your life. Um, I had one of those uh, defining moment experiences in my life um, uh, several years ago. I, was, I went out to a pastor's conference in Ohio and uh, it was at Parkside Church. Maybe some of you have heard of the pastor there, Alistair Begg. He's a great Scottish preacher. And I went out to Alistair Begg's church and and this is an interesting conference. It was a pastor's conference. And pretty much all he did was he brought in three other British preachers. He's Scottish. He brought three other UK preachers, these older gentlemen. And pretty much we just listened to them preach. That was the conference. You'd go to a session, one of them would preach. Then we'd have a break, and then another one would preach. Then we went to lunch. Then we came back, more preaching. And it was just sermon after sermon for about two days' worth. And it wasn't, you know, typically you go to these conferences and there's breakout sessions and whiteboard sessions and seminars with different tracks of interest. And, you know, these, that's how they usually do conferences. And this one was just pretty much old British guys preaching. That was it. But I have to tell you that the power of God was almost tangible in, that, in those sessions that it was as if the presence of God was, was palpable. And, and when they would finish preaching, you know, we're all supposed to go off and take a break or, or do some inane thing. And no one wanted to move. We just wanted to sit in our pews. I remember one time the MC saying, well, you can go to lunch now or if we just want to sit here and pray silently, you can do that. Because no one was eager to jump up and go. It was as if the, the weight of God's glory and the, the marvel of His truth and the beauty of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit was pressing us down into our pews. And we didn't want to go anywhere. We just wanted to sit and think about the greatness of our God. It was an awesome experience. So that was a defining moment for me because I had to figure out what in the world was going on. Why did this happen? Because here are these guys. They weren't using any high-tech presentation tools. They weren't preaching with oratorical flourish. I mean, they had British accents. I mean, that, that's engaging, okay? I mean, oh, to preach like a Scotsman. I mean, really, what preacher wouldn't want to do that? But besides that sort of, you know, British accents are cool thing for us Americans, 
Like, well, there wasn't anything there. They didn't tell lots of uh, heart-rending stories that grabbed us emotionally and twisted us around. It was pretty much these guys who would open the Bible and they would read it and then they would teach from it. And as a result, our hearts were melting underneath this, this kind of preaching. And, and that's when my, that defining moment happened to me. I was like, wow, it really is. It really is God's Word taught that changes our lives. And you know, it's not that I didn't believe that before. It's not as if up to that point I had been you know, reading Harry Potter to the church or something. Um, I had been teaching the Bible, and I believed in teaching the Bible, but, but I had, it had been a while since I had sat and experienced just someone anointed by the Holy Spirit opening the Word of God to me and just being reaffirmed, having it branded on in my heart that like, this is what I need to do for South Shore Baptist Church. I need to give myself to opening this book and teaching this book and praying for God to speak through this book. I, that's my job. And that was just reaffirmed in that. And that's what I want to talk about today here in Proverbs is the, the task and the centrality and the vitality of teaching in the local church. How important teaching is to the life of a Christian and to the life of a congregation. And here we have it in Proverbs 13:14, The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life. I like that imagery, a fountain of life. Uh, when I read that, my mind imagined uh, the scenes that I've seen pictures of Palestine, the Judean wilderness. Or I thought back to where I grew up in the desert southwest. Uh, many times I'd gone out for hikes with my friends in the desert. And you know, I love hiking in the desert, climbing over rocks and scrambling down ravines. The thing about hiking in the desert is you always pack a lot of water because it ain't out there. <laughs> and so you have to pack extra. It's extra work. You have extra liters of water and you go on these mountain hikes. Uh, but imagine hiking in a barren, arid wasteland and coming over a ridge and down in a valley you see in the midst of a, an ocean of brown you see a green spot. You say, what is that? And so you walk toward it and you get closer and you realize it's palm trees and, and there are grasses and there are plants growing up. And as you draw closer, you say, this is an oasis. And you walk into that oasis and in, instantly the temperature drops about 10 degrees because you're under the shade of the palms and the, the grasses and natural plants just cool the air. And then you hear that gurgling noise, the gurgling of a stream. And you come to that stream and coming up from who knows where in the earth is a spring that's giving life to a ribbon of green in the midst of the wasteland. And I believe that Scripture is saying that, that here that if we are wise people, we will use our mouths to teach God's truth to one another and that we will be, in essence, those oases, springs of water in the world around us. We often complain about New England as being a spiritual wasteland. You know, people say that, oh, it's such a spiritual desert up here in New England. It's like we're a spiritual desert, but we don't get the benefit of the warm temperatures. I mean, go figure. So we're, we, we have this spiritual desert. And, you know, it's based upon surveys that are done about how often people actually go to church and what they actually believe. And, you know, in those kinds of surveys, New England always comes out as a very unreligious, unspiritually minded kind of place in those sort of surveys. But my point this morning is, be that true or not, the point is that God has an oasis for New England. It's you. It's me speaking 
God's truth. And then whenever we open our mouths and share the truth of Christ that we've learned from His Word, it's as if a living water is flowing out of us. Uh, let, let me show you some other texts that teach the same thing in Proverbs. Uh, turn to Proverbs chapter 10. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 21. Proverbs 10.21 says, The lips of the righteous nourish many, but fools die for lack of judgment. That word for nourish is a Hebrew word for uh, shepherding or grazing or tending a flock. It's a shepherdy kind of word. A sheepy word. Okay? So the lips of the righteous are nourishing. They're grazing many, but fools die for lack of judgment. What a contrast. The fool who does not accept God's Word and does not believe God's Word they die. But when we're righteous and when we uh, serve Christ, His teaching not only keeps us alive, but it overflows to help others. You, you know, I think sometimes we think of wisdom in terms of, I need wisdom so I can get through life without messing it up. I need wisdom to, so, so that I do this right. But it's not just about my life going the right way. It's about me, in addition, shepherding others and giving life, being that fountain in the desert spiritually for other people. Or look uh, again at Proverbs chapter 10, verse 31. The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom. Part of being a righteous, wise person is that you will teach others. Or look at Proverbs chapter 16. Just to rattle off a few more here. Proverbs 16, verse 23. A wise man's heart guides his mouth and his lips promote instruction. So that wise, godly heart that fears God gives guidance to the mouth and out of it flows the living water of God's truth to give life to others. Or look at uh, just one more. Proverbs chapter 20. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 15. Proverbs 20:15 says, Gold there is and rubies in abundance, but lips that speak knowledge are a rare jewel. You want to find jewelry? That's easy. Go to the mall. There's like five jewelry stores in the mall. It seems like every mall in America they have jewelry stores everywhere. I mean, how much jewelry is there really to buy? But apparently there's a market. But walk around that same mall and try to find one person who could faithfully lead you to Christ and faithfully open up God's Word to teach you. That's the rare jewel. Where do you buy God in the mall? Where do you buy spiritual life in the mall? Where do you find it? What store is it in? Oh, it's a rare jewel to find lips that speak knowledge. In fact, the whole book of Proverbs is a teaching book. This whole book has been calculated and designed to teach us God's truth. And so, so wise people, godly people, use their mouths to teach. And when we use our mouths to teach, we become a fountain of life by giving life to others. Now, think of me a little bit more carefully then about how this works exactly. How is that possible that we give life through teaching? And I think the first thing that has to be said is that it's not teaching itself that gives the life. Okay? I mean, you could teach the wrong thing and actually give death. There are teachers out there who are telling young angry men that if they uh, martyr themselves with explosives and kill civilians, that they will go to heaven and have 70 you know, versions. I mean, it's a false teaching. It's a destructive, deadly teaching. So it's not 
only the fact that teaching gives life, but you have to teach a life-giving message. And the life-giving message is God's Word. God's Word always gives life. You look in the Bible, God says, let there be light. And there was light. God uh, breathes, as it were, into Adam and he becomes a living being. God speaks to um, Abraham and calls him out of his home and he says, I want you to leave the land of your forefathers and go to the land that I will show you. And so through God speaking to Abraham, the nation of Israel comes into existence. Uh, the line of Abraham comes into existence. Or look at Moses. God speaks the Ten Commandments to Moses and He carries God's Word down to the people of Israel. And the covenant people of Israel are coming into existence. And so life always comes through God's Word. Jesus in the New Testament stands before the late grave of Lazarus and He says, Lazarus, come out with His words. And Lazarus comes forth from the tomb. And even today, when we share the Gospel, when we speak God's Word, God's life is pouring through it. So the role then of the teacher is the role of a conduit. The, the teacher is merely the purveyor. We're, we're the thing that carries the Word of God. So, so it's in God's sovereignty, this is how it works, that God's life-giving Word, His heavenly life, is communicated through earthly people, fallible, faulty, sinful people, who are being changed into Christ's image, we're the conduit that carries the life-giving Word of God. And so it is in that sense that teaching gives life because we're teaching God's Word. Um, it made me think of a time when I talked to my grandpa, Rennie. Some of you know my last name is Rennie. It's a German name, R-I-N-N-E. The Germans pronounce it Rinna. The Nebraskans, Nebraskans pronounce it Rini, uh, but I say Rennie. And uh, anyway, I, I always wondered what it meant. I'm like, it's a German name. Maybe it means something. So I went to my grandpa, Rennie, and I was like, well, Grandpa, you know, one day, what does our name mean in German? And my grandpa is a man of few words, very few words. He's just an old Nebraska farmer, chewed on a toothpick all the time. Have you ever seen the American Gothic picture? You know, the guy with the pitchfork? Like, I'm pretty sure he posed for that because, like, that is just what... If I showed you a picture of him, you would be amazed. And... Uh, so I said, Grandpa, like, what does our last name mean? And Grandpa just, he said, it means gutter. I'm like, what? Gutter? Jeremy Gutter? You know, it sure doesn't mean like warrior or, you know, broadsword or something, you know, manly like that, Grandpa. Come on. It's like gutter. So I, I, every once in a while I'd meet German-speaking people and I'd say, oh, by the way, I have this funny German last name. I'm like, you know, Rinne, what does it mean? And they would say, oh, yeah, that's the word for, uh, yeah, it's, it's like uh, on the house, you know, with the, the water. It, <laughs> so I went online and I looked it online. German-English dictionary, there it is. Rinne, gutter, Eve spout. And I was like, oh. But then it dawned on me. I'm like, it could be gutter. You could also translate it. Life-giving water channel. You know? <laughs> yes! It's a water channel. <laughs> uh, so, so work with me on this, you know? <laughs> but I was thinking, isn't that, what, isn't that what God does when we become a Christian? A, a Christian is like a... Before we become Christians, we're just sinners. And sinners are clogged, dirty, useless gutters that should just be taken down and thrown away because we're no good to God. 
But through the blood of Christ shed on the cross, He cleanses us and we become made new. Our sins are forgiven. Our sins are washed away. And now we become vessels through which the, the, the power of the Holy Spirit can flow. So the moral of the story is we all need to be Rennies. We all need to be those life-giving channels. And that's what it means then to be a teacher, is to simply recognize that I'm just a gutter. I'm nothing. But as long as I'm carrying the life of God's Word and His Holy Spirit, that's where the life is. And it's in that sense that we become springs of life. Not that we're anything, but that God's Word is everything. And in God's mysterious sovereignty... God has chosen to deliver His Word through fallible teachers. And that when we're wise and when we're filled up with Christ, He calls us to open our mouths and become a spring of living water. Jesus used that same imagery in John chapter 4 to the same, that through the Holy Spirit and through His Word ministering to others. And so it's interesting then when you look at the history of the people of God down through the centuries and down through the eons that at the center of God's people, there's always been leaders, and those leaders have always been teachers. That in God's people, uh, the leaders are feeders. Okay? So you think of the Old Testament. You had the prophets. They spoke the Word of God. You had the priests. And, and yeah, they did the thing at the tabernacle and they sacrificed the animals. But interestingly, when you look at the priests, they're also teachers. And the people went to them for rulings on God's law. Ezra being the primary example of that. Or the king in the Old Testament. Do you remember we studied this two weeks ago on Palm Sunday? That the first job of the king when he became king was to take a copy of God's law and write a copy for himself by hand. That he was to be a student of God's Word. So the leaders were to be people of God's Word who had that living water dwelling richly in them, the Word of God, and then could communicate it to others. As we move from the Old Testament into the New Testament, we come to the great shepherd of the sheep, Jesus Christ. And, and Jesus was, above all else, a great preacher. You know, we think about Jesus. When you read, read, the, read the Gospel again and look at what He's doing, look how often He's preaching. Jesus was first and foremost a preacher. And He did miracles. And certainly the climax of His ministry was His death on the cross and His resurrection. But for three and a half years, He taught and He taught. You just read it all the time. They always call Him Teacher. That's His name. Rabbi. Teacher. He's teaching everywhere. He taught in homes. He taught at the temple. He taught in the synagogue. He went outside and taught in the fields. He taught while He was walking on the road. He taught by wells. He taught on the mountainside. He'd sit in a boat and teach. He'd go out in a boat in a storm and teach while the disciples are fearing for their lives. He's teaching them things. It's like He never stopped teaching. It's just kind of the background noise of, of the Gospels is Jesus constantly teaching. And so the torrent of God's life and His kingdom flow through the person of Jesus who is the life. And it comes out in His proclamation of God's Word. And again, we can move to the New Testament. Oh, actually, or, uh, let's look at one example first of Jesus' teaching before we go to the apostles. Look at um, Mark chapter 6. Glad I remember this. I didn't want to skip this. Mark chapter 6. It's on page uh, 1160. I'm sorry, 996 in the Pew Bible. Mark chapter 6. Page 996. This is the story of the feeding of the 5,000. You may have heard of this miracle before. Jesus out in the desert feeds 5,000 people with just a handful of food. It's a great story demonstrating Jesus as the source of our life. 
But notice how the story begins before the miracle. It says in Mark chapter 6, verse 30, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to Him all they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, He said to them, come with Me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Hey, you apostles are tired from teaching, by the way. And so let's have a staff retreat. Everyone, we're going away. We're going to go find a little retreat center out in the desert and we're going to hang out there and relax. So verse 32, they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So when Jesus landed, He saw a large crowd and He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Do you ever just see people and just think like, who are these people? And where are they going with their lives? I don't know, maybe you don't do that. Sometimes I, you, know, you stop and you do people watching and you just think, who are these people? And what's going on in their lives? And do they know God? Uh, where's Christ in their lives? Stand at downtown crossing or post office square or go to uh, South Shore Plaza or walk down Nantasket Beach in the summer. It's just like, who are these people? And, and so many, you know, we're like sheep without a shepherd. Have you ever felt like a, a lost sheep? Maybe today you just feel kind of like a lost sheep. And just wandering around like, shepherd, I need a shepherd. I need guidance in my life. I, I just feel lost. And Jesus looked out and He saw all these people who were coming out into the desert because they were looking for something. And He had compassion on them. They were like sheep without a shepherd. So, verse 34, He began teaching them many things. He did the most important thing He could do. He began to open up the floodgates of God's life-giving water and He taught them His Word. And God's life flowed out through Him. Then there's the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. But even in that, Jesus is using it to teach His disciples. So everything is like turned by Jesus into a teaching opportunity. Because that's how God's life-giving Word gets to us is through teachers. And of course, we can go into the book of Acts the Apostles, the New Testament, uh, after the Gospels. And what do the Apostles do? They teach and teach and teach. And you know, Cornelius, we read about today in Acts chapter 10, Peter's going to go there and teach. And it's through that teaching that the power of God's Spirit comes and opens hearts and changes lives. In fact, you can look up the Greek word for teaching. It's didasko is the verb, or the noun is didaskalos, which is teacher. Didaskalia is a teaching and that word occurs in those different word groups 177 times in the New Testament. And there's other words for teaching and other words for doctrine. You know, just how many hundreds of times the Bible talks about teaching and teachers. And teaching's everywhere. Because the teaching of the wise is a fountain of life. And how much more so in the New Testament uh, where we have the Gospel and we have Christ. So what does that mean for us today? It means that the life-giving river of Jesus is still flowing today. That that life-giving spring has not stopped flowing. The Holy Spirit has not been withdrawn. The Gospel is still as alive as ever. And that today, God is still, thousands of years later, still advancing His purposes by people, fallible people, opening their mouths and letting the teaching of, of God's Word flow out through their mouths. Or writing an email 
and letting the truth come through an email or sending a letter or using sign language. But however the communication is done, it's God's Word flowing through people by which God changes the world. It's really an amazing thing. And so God's plan for New England, God's plan for your school, God's plan for where you work and for your family is you speaking God's Word in different ways to the people around you. And that through that is how God is going to breathe His life into those situations. Let me just think quickly in terms of application. Um, I was thinking of three areas or three arenas. There's probably more. But just to kind of prime the pump and get you thinking. But three areas in which we can be teaching God's Word today through which those life-giving waters can flow. And the first one is this. We need to be teaching the Bible in the church. Maybe you're like, well, duh. <laughs> but, but it needs to be said that at the center of the church's life needs to be Bible preaching and teaching in all different levels. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of like I think of, of Bible teaching in the church as the spigot. You know, you turn the spigot on for outside and the water flows through it. And then you use that water to water your garden and the plants grow up in the summer. Uh, and, and I think of it that way, that, that preaching is like that. And whenever we, we focus on the Scriptures and we preach the Scriptures and teach it in all of our ministries in the church, we're allowing, in a sense, the Holy Spirit to flow into the body of the church and that the garden begins to grow and it begins to bear spiritual fruit. And conversely, when churches start going, eh, I don't know... I mean, the Bible's a little controversial. Maybe we'll close it down a little. Or, or maybe we won't focus so much on Scripture. Or maybe today people need something different. And we begin to de-emphasize the Scripture and open up other spigots. What you find is that the, it squelches the life of the Holy Spirit in the congregation. And you won't notice it at first. Just like you won't notice that your flowers didn't get enough water at first. It takes time. But what happens is it slowly starts to wilt. And then one day you walk out and all your plants are brown. You're like, when did that happen? Well, I haven't been watering them for a couple of weeks. And so we need to keep that spigot of the Word of God open. Um, let me be clear here. Are preaching and teaching the only gifts in the church? Of course not. The church is not just a big teaching center. The church is not meant to be just a big lecture hall where we stuff more and more data into our brains. That's not the point of the church. But I, so, so teaching is not the only gift. The church is supposed to show mercy. The church is supposed to um, uh, have acts of kindness, to care for those in need, to show hospitality, to, sh- to give leadership. Uh, all kinds of gifts to be operating in the church. Artistic gifts and all kinds of abilities. But my point is the primacy of preaching and teaching through which God's life-giving uh, power flows into congregations. And I, I think the reason I'm harping on that, and again, maybe you're like, well, duh, but I, I think it has to be emphasized. Because I, my concern is that the American evangelical church today is kind of losing its nerve about teaching and preaching. That there's a squishiness about this topic. I don't think the American evangelical church, has, by and large, has completely punted on God's Word and given up on it altogether. Although I think there are some, perhaps, churches that have that I've heard on TV, and I'm like, where's the Bible? But, but there are others, you know, where, yeah, the Bible's still there, but, it, you know, we kind of lost faith in it a little. We're like, well, maybe the Bible needs a little something. Because this is a postmodern era, and people have been trained visually through the Internet and television. And so, yeah, we need to have the Bible. We've got to be careful what we, how we use it. We don't want to offend seekers. 
and we don't want to turn people off by its teachings. And, and maybe we need to kind of bring in some technology here or some entertainment there and somehow package it so that it's palatable for people today. And it, that's where I think that the danger is. And I believe when we do that, albeit in an effort to be more relevant and, and compassionate to people outside the doors of the church, we have this risk of turning down the spigot and shutting off the free flow of God's Word into a congregation. And so, um, boy, I, I could really use your prayers. If I could ask you to do something for me, just pray for me. Pray for my family. Pray for me as a Christian. But most of all, when you say your prayers, you know, when you pray with the little kids, let's pray for Pastor Jeremy and, and Pastor Seth and Pastor Chris. Pray that we would be tenacious in our faithfulness to this book. Pray that we wouldn't give up on it, that we wouldn't doubt it, that we wouldn't, wouldn't turn from this book, but that we would be faithful to just opening this book and whatever it says, even if it's hard, we're just going to say it because this is where God's life comes from. I'll make you a deal as a congregation. This is a deal I want to make with you. If you will promise to pray me full, I will promise to preach you full. Okay? Pray me full and I'll preach you full. Pray Pastor Seth full and he will preach and teach you full. Pray Pastor Chris full and he will preach and teach the youth and the people of this church full. And this is not just for pastors. Uh, I don't want to make this pastor-centric because it's not like pastors are the only ones with the gift of teaching in the church. The gift of teaching exists in many places in the church. Um, Sunday school teachers. Small group leaders. Uh, those who teach adult Sunday school classes. People who meet one-on-one in relationships with people just to teach them in one-on-one discipling relationships. All the different ways the ministry of teaching happens in the church. And I just want to just encourage you, if you're one of those people in one of those teaching situations, just stay with it. Don't be discouraged. Don't lose your nerve. You know, I, I know how it works. I've taught, I teach every Wednesday night. I teach little uh, fourth and fifth grade boys in K4C. I know what it's like to teach little kids. And in different situations. And I know how it goes. It's like Saturday night and you've got a class to teach. The next day you're like, oh, I'm so tired. And we've got to teach this class. And there's that one kid that I just want to strangle. <laughs> and, you know, I just got to get through the, the 50 minutes. And maybe I'll come up with some crafts or something to try to just keep them busy. And, you know, I'll teach, but I don't know if they're really listening. And I'm not really that good of a teacher. And uh, Where do you think those thoughts are coming from? The Holy Spirit? Hmm? Right? I know where they're coming from because, frankly, I hear the same voice in my head every week. I know where those thoughts come from. From the one who doesn't want us to sit down with little kids or with one person in a one-on-one relationship, or before a Sunday school class, or at a small group meeting on a Tuesday night, or on a Sunday morning, and just open the book and teach it. But when we do, when we're faithful, God's Word flows, and it just changes life. It's amazing. But I need to quickly move on. The two other places where we need to teach faithfully God's Word, first is the church, the second in our families. If you uh, have kids at home, if you have children, if you have grandchildren, um, you need to be a teacher of your children. The church children's ministry is here to augment the home children's ministry, I believe. And so, you who are parents and grandparents, teach your children. 
Teach them God's Word. Um, you know, m- maybe you had kids growing up and now they're grown. It's not too late. Now you're a grandparent. You get a second chance. That's the cool thing about being a grandparent. You get a second chance. You get to do all those things that you wanted to do before and you're kind of like, oh, I wish I would have done it. Second chance with grandkids. Be a teacher of your grandkids. Teach them God's Word. Um, here's a vision for your homes. How about this? Every home, a church, every father, the pastor, where dads and, and parents, but I think especially dads, there's a commandment, especially in the Scriptures, for fathers to step up and to teach their families and teach their kids. Bible teaching your kids is really not that hard. It really is not that hard. You open up the Bible with them. <laughs> That's what I do with my older kids. We sit down and we read. Uh, or with the little kids who can't quite read yet, we get one of those little picture Bibles. We read the stories. and They're getting used to the narrative. But you just open the Bible and you read it with them. That's not really that hard. It sounds hard. It really isn't. Just open the Bible and read for kids. You don't have to know that much of the Bible. You'll learn along with them. It's great. Right? Uh, the hard thing I find is getting myself to sit down and do it. That's the hard thing. It's like I'm always too tired or the house is too messy or we'll have something else to do or there's someplace else we have to go. And it's just easy to push that aside. And how easy it is to focus on making sure my kids are well-educated and my kids have good health care and they have good extracurricular activities and they have good friendships. But, oh, what about teaching them the Bible? You know, the life-giving Word of God. And so I just want to encourage you to make your home a church and pastor your children by teaching them the Bible. And you can do that. You don't have to have gone to schooling at all. Just open up the book and start reading it with your kids. You know? And then one last area we need to teach. We need to teach in the church. We need to teach God's Word in our families. And then I think in interpersonal relationships. Not in any organized structure, but just among ourselves as believers. Uh, let me show you one last Scripture. Oh, This will be my last Scripture for you. But Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. It's on page 1167. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Page 1167. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. So let Christ's Word dwell in you richly. Get filled up and supersaturated like a sponge with the living waters of God's Word. And then, teach and admonish one another. Now, who is this written to? To Christians. This is not just a letter to pastors. If you're a Christian, this verse applies to you. You're commanded to teach. You know, we're just in our interpersonal relationships. Teach one another in conversations with each other. And so you may not have the gift of teaching hundreds of people at a time, and you may not have a Sunday school teaching position, but if you're a Christian, one of the things we're all called to do is teach each other, which is just a wonderful thing. I had someone teach me a couple weeks ago. I was, it was three weeks ago now when I was preaching on that sermon on truth and lying, and I was hammering on something in the book of Revelation, and then after the service, uh, a lady in our church, a member of our church, came up to me and she said, Hey, said, I, I like what you're saying in the book of Revelation here and here, but you know... It seemed like you didn't complete the thought and you could have gone here, here, and here with it and then sort of brought it back around like this. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's good, that's good. And, you know, I was kind of taking notes. I was being taught. A woman in the church was teaching me the Bible. I was like, yeah, oh, 
yeah, I didn't see that. That's a really good observation. So the cool thing was, she told me that after the 8.30 service, so I had time to adjust my sermon. So you guys, you know, you know, that's the test run over there. You guys get the real, finished, you know, they're beta, and you guys are, are the uh, launch version. So, so it was great, though. I was being taught the Word of God. I was being taught the Word of God. doesn't matter if I'm a male or female or a pastor or not a pastor. You know, yeah, there's those roles, but at another more deeper level, we're all teaching and encouraging each other in the body of Christ. My wife teaches me, and I teach her. Uh, next time someone comes to you and and uh, is struggling with something and they're hurting and you know we cry on each other's shoulders and we're supposed to do that in the church but don't be afraid to open your mouth and teach and to say you know when I went through the same thing there was a scripture that brought me through or I learned this from God and, and teach what God taught you through those things let's speak into each other's lives or notice it says going back to verse 3.16 it says admonish one another have you ever been admonished? have you ever admonished somebody? That's got a little more of a point on it, doesn't it? Admonishing. It can hurt sometimes. And I don't think this is calling us to be a kind of hyper-legalistic, judgmental, witch-hunt church. There are those churches where everyone's out trying to catch each other in sins so they can all jump on each other. I'm not saying we should become that. But we can admonish each other and you know, challenge each other. Say, you know, hey, you know, we were at that office party the other day, that, that cocktail party or whatever, and, and I know, you know you had a drink, but it seemed like you had a few too many. I mean, was it just me or were you just a little over the line? And you know, remember, man, we've got a witness to uphold. We're Christians. And it says, do not get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And, you know, when someone says that to you, it's like, ow. But and if, you're, if you're godly, if you're godly, you'll appreciate it a little bit down the road. Maybe not at first. Or, or you're, you're venting about something and you're, oh, you're so angry about this and this and this. And, and you have a Christian friend who listens to you and they, like, oh, they sympathize. And, and then at the end of the conversation, the Christian friend says to you, well, you know, remember that at some point you're going to have to forgive. Like, oh, why'd you have to bring that up? <laughs> You've got to forgive, you know, because otherwise this is going to eat you alive and Christ commands us to forgive. And like I said, when you hear that at first, it's like, ooh, I don't want to hear that. But if you're godly, you'll appreciate it a little later when you calm down. And you'll say, yeah, I've got to forgive. And I don't know how to do it. Jesus, teach me to forgive the way that you've forgiven me. We, we cry out for His help. And that's admonishment. That's iron sharpening. That's not judgmental, legalistic church. That's just iron sharpening iron in a loving, humble kind of way. And ultimately, of course, we need to teach not just people inside the church. We need to teach God's Word to those who don't know Jesus. I had a, a, a British evangelist. <laughs> Britain's is my theme today. I had a British evangelist tell me once. He goes, this is my definition of being an evangelist. He says, evangelism is teaching the Bible to non-Christians. That's a pretty cool definition. Teaching the Bible to non-Christians. So even in evangelism, we're opening the Word. Evangelism is not about convincing someone to pray a prayer. It's about just opening the Word and letting the Holy Spirit of God, those living waters, flow through and change a life in a powerful way. And so God's plan for the south shore of Boston is it's us. We're the plan. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that terrifying? <laughs> Isn't that exhilarating? We're the plan. And, and the plan is for us to open our mouths when God gives us those moments and speak His Word and then just step back and let the power of God's Word do its thing in people's lives. And let me just end by... Um, just throwing in a word, in case you're here and you wouldn't maybe call yourself a Christian, 
or you're not sure if you're a Christian or not. You know, this whole sermon's kind of been toward Christians thinking about teaching, but I just want to say to you, uh, if you're not a Christian, that, that um, there is life and forgiveness in Jesus. And there is new hope in Jesus. Even though we're sinners, even though we're lost, we're like those lost sheep, I just want to tell you there's a shepherd. And, and that this, the sin in which you find yourself and the despair in which you find yourself is, is not the end of the story. That Christ can forgive and Christ can give you new life. And He can put the living water in you so that instead of being a dying person, you become a person who speaks life to others. And I don't know where you're, what you're drinking these days in terms of life-giving waters, but I just want to tell you, a drop of the life-giving water of Christ will quench you far more than oceans of whatever this world has for you. That in Christ there is life and there is forgiveness. And so I just invite you to come to Jesus. Maybe you've never really crossed that line. Maybe that's the defining moment for you today, is that God is calling you to put your faith in Christ as your Savior. Not just be religious, not just generally, generically believe in God, but to put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and the salvation of your soul. I just encourage you to make that that step today. Let's pray.